Nova Ukraine, and UNICEF USA. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Nova Ukraine and UNICEF USA are partnering to support children and families devastated by the war in Ukraine. Together, they will be providing life-saving assistance where it matters most by providing emergency access to water, delivering health, hygiene, and education supplies, establishing blue dot centers to concentrate delivery of emergency services, and more. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting give.novaukraine.org UNICEF. Your donations are 100% secure and tax-deductible, and your contribution will help support relief on the ground in Ukraine. That's give.novaukraine.org UNICEF. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's event at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Melissa Kane. I'm a journalist and an author here in the Bay Area, and welcome to today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport to discuss their new book. It's called 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Now, Dion is a columnist for The Washington Post and an author, and Rappaport is a senior practice fellow in American democracy for the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. That's a mouthful. He is also the former Secretary of State for the state of Connecticut. In 100% Democracy, Dion and Rappaport make the case that if Americans can be required to pay taxes and serve on juries and occasionally go to war, then it stands to reason they can be required to be asked to vote. By treating voting as a universal right and a social obligation, they argue we'll be able to vastly reduce voter suppression and foster a more democratic society and align closer to the country that was envisioned in the Declaration of Independence. Across the next hour, we're going to discuss the importance of voter participation and the benefits the country could reap by ensuring every voice is heard. If you're watching along with us online and you have a question, just put it in the text chat on YouTube and we will get to them later in the program. And so now I will turn it over and allow these gentlemen to begin. Welcome, Mr. Rappaport and Mr. Dion Jr. Thank you. Uh, it's so great to be here with you again, because uh, your conversations with you are so great. And the Commonwealth Club has been an amazing venue for such a long time for good ideas and contested ideas. And so it's a real honor for both of us to be here. We're so glad to have Indeed. you. Indeed. Thank you for having us. So tell us about this project. Uh, so, first of all, it's been fun to work with my friend Miles. Uh, I always say that Miles if, has so much energy that if Europe could just tap all of Miles' energy, they wouldn't need another drop of Russian oil. And it's true. Um, but we started this with a working group because we thought that this idea, which has been in effect in Australia for 100 years. So if you want to proof a concept, 100 years is pretty good. Uh, and it's worked really well there. The idea that every citizen is required by law to vote, we believe it solves two big problems. And we don't pretend it solves every problem in our democracy, but we think it puts us on the road to solving a number of them. First big problem, most of our elections are like a fancy dinner party because we have an A-list of likely voters that all the politicians and all the political consultants pay lots of attention to, and then B and C lists of voters who occasionally vote or may not vote at all, and citizens who might not even be registered. Um, this has a number of really negative effects on our politics. For one thing, parties spend a lot of their time trying to mobilize their own voters, in the process spend enormous sums of money to get their people to the polls, just to have voter protection. But the other thing they do is they try to discourage the other side from voting. It creates very, even more negative advertising than we would see because they try to turn supporters of the other side into, oh, gee, we might have voted for that person, but they're terrible. Look at those ads. And so we think that this system... Um, you know, Harry Bosch, the great detective hero in Michael Connolly's novels, has a great slogan that I think is sort of reflects our idea. Everybody counts or nobody counts. And our idea is that everybody should count. 
The second reason we embrace this is because of these voting wars all over the country and these voter suppression efforts that popped up again after the 2020 election. As you know, we write in the book about 2020, and it was really a great victory for American democracy. Uh, you know, 66.7% turnout was a record, and we think we should do better. But in the middle of a pandemic, because we made it easier for people to vote all over the country, people responded. Um, you know, Joe Biden got a lot more votes than Hillary Clinton did, but Donald Trump got more votes than he got the first time. Americans came out. And now you have these efforts to make it harder to vote again. Why would we want to do that? If you declare voting a duty akin to jury duty, it becomes the job of every public official, everybody running campaigns, to make it as easy as possible for citizens to do their duty. So we have what we call gateway reforms, which are designed to make 100% democracy work. Excellent. And Mr. Rappaport, I mean, you were the Secretary of State in Connecticut. You certainly saw this uh, firsthand as, you know, the person in charge of making sure elections are done freely and fairly. Talk about um, how you got to be part of this project. Right. Well, uh, I think EJ and I share a fundamental uh, trust and belief in the democratic process and in having all voices heard. And I should say it's been a complete delight to work with EJ on this project. He's been a really, really great uh, partner to have. So thank you. Not to mention he's a pretty good writer. <laughs> Anyway, but I have been working both as in the state legislature in Connecticut, as secretary of the state in, uh, in Connecticut, as the president of Demos and Common Cause for probably close to 40 years on trying to advance voting rights, expand our democracy, make it as even a playing field as possible. And all the reforms that I have worked on and many people have worked on in what I think is a kind of strong and robust and growing democracy movement in the country, uh, same-day vote registration, pre-registration of 16- and 17-year-olds, restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions, mail-in, expanded mail-in voting, early voting. You know, I think they're really all good, and they have all moved the needle. But if you think about it, not enough in my mind. You know, as EJ said, in the 2018 midterm elections were a record for midterms at 50% turnout, and the presidential election of 2020 was a record uh, for presidential elections at 66.2. So great that there were record turnouts, I agree, uh, especially in a pandemic, but it's sort of nothing to write home about. So I started to think, after all this time of working on these issues, is there something that really could move the needle in a serious way? And then in uh, 2015, I read a piece that E.J. Dion and his colleague at Brookings um, you know, wrote about universal voting, and it was sort of like a light bulb. Sort of like, why haven't I thought of this before? Why didn't I think about this before? And I got really, really interested in it. So E.J., as, as E.J. mentioned, we had this working group. We studied it for two years. We came out with a report. And then, lo and behold, we got a call from Diane Wachtel, who is the publisher of the New Press, uh, saying, we've been wanting somebody to write this book you know, for five years, would you two be willing to do it? And we said, absolutely. And we worked on the book. It was a labor of love. Here it is. And we're delighted to be. What we really want to do is put the idea out into the public debate. This has never been discussed in the United States, or not really. Um, and I think its time has come. Not that it's going to be enacted everywhere in five minutes. But if we put it out there as kind of a North Star, I think it becomes part of the conversation. That's what we're hoping to do. Well, what is, uh, I know you talked about timing of this and how the 2020 election was, was a big part of why you wanted to have this conversation. But at the same time, I have to say, when I first saw this book, uh, I thought, oh boy, you know, we can't even get people to get vaccinated. <laughs> it's like, people don't like being told what to do. Uh, and I think we've seen, we've seen that pretty clearly over the last couple of years. I mean, are you concerned at all that there will be sort of a knee-jerk reaction that maybe um, even in a place like San Francisco, we haven't really seen a push for something like this. People just are a little a little iffy about, uh, about orders from the government right now. I think you could say we're not only concerned, we're certain that there'll be a pushback <laughs> yeah. against this idea. I joke uh, that... Um, Miles and I are either real fools or very honest with our readers because we did a poll about this idea. The Democracy Fund helped us uh, do some polling on the idea. And what we discovered is 26% of Americans now support this idea. Now, I actually thought that was pretty good, given that this idea has never been advanced in a systematic way. But it also means a clear majority oppose uh, this idea. Now, but there were a couple of things our polling showed. One was that... 
um, only about half of Americans, a little less than half, were strongly opposed, uh, which means we think starting out of the gate on this new idea, 50% of Americans are open to it. But we did some polling beneath the surface mm -hmm. um, where we discovered that a big majority of Americans agree with our underlying premise, 61 percent, that vo voting is both a right and a duty. It's not just a right. It's a right and a duty. So the premise uh, is uh, widely held. Um, and we think we can we also ask people what they objected to about the, the idea. Now, the pure libertarian argument, we're going to have uh, a big argument with ourselves. And, you know, if people can't agree that vaccination, which might save their lives, is reasonably compulsory, we understand that there be objections to this. On the other hand, we have forms of compulsion now to create a fairer society that people uh, fully accept, even if they grumble about it. Jury duty, we think, is the best metaphor uh, here. It's worth remembering that one of the greatest victories of the civil rights movement uh, was ending discrimination against black people serving on juries. What that really meant is that black people then became obligated to serve on juries just like everyone else. And the great civil rights lawyer and law professor, uh, a great civil rights lawyer and law professor said that, um, you know, jury duty gives the ordinary citizen extraordinary power. The same is true of voting. But then there were second-level objections that we directly try to meet, just to pick a couple of examples you couldn't impose this on a system that also suppresses votes. That doesn't work. And so we propose these reforms to make it easy to vote. We do not want an onerous system where people think it's a big brother system. Therefore, uh, as in Australia, the fine is maximum $20. It's not a criminal fine. It can't be criminalized. There's, there are no... Um, uh, there's no interest or penalties. You can get out of the fine with an hour of community service. You do not have to cast a ballot for anybody. You don't have to vote for anybody. You can cast a blank ballot. And if I could just make one quick last point, um, in Australia, only about 13% of the people pay the fine. If you give any reasonable excuse for not voting, you're not going to be fined. We just want to create a culture of participation through this requirement. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you do talk in the book about how to address some issues of economic inequality and other and, and other issues to make it not too onerous. But doesn't that risk it being not effective? I mean, if you can slap down $20 at the clerk's office and walk out or not, you know, I, do, do we is there are there too many protections such that it becomes kind of toothless? I mean, it's interesting. The, the experience in Australia and a number of other countries, by the way, we've mentioned Australia, but there are 26 democratic countries around the globe. So in Europe, in Africa, in uh, in Asia and in Australia, obviously. And South America. And South America, a lot of them. That's right. Um, you know, that use this with various forms of enforcement and various levels. And what, what the, the studies show is that even a modest level of enforcement makes the, t the turnout go way up. In the case of Australia, again, it's a $20 fine. But when they imposed it, when they first enacted it, their turnout went from 60% to 90%. And it has stayed there for 100 years. In the, in the last, in 2019, which was the last national elections there, 96.3% of the people in Australia are registered to vote, and then 92% of those people voted. So when EJ said only 13% of the people, it's 13% of the non-voters, which is less than 1% of the actual voting population. So this light touch, you know, we don't want to be punitive, but we think that a light touch enforcement is enough to really make this succeed. Now, and one of the other things that um, is some great statistics in here, really, really fun to dig into. But one of the things that I saw is that some of the the, the biggest opponents of this and the people who necess don't necessarily see voting as, as a duty are, not surprisingly, uh, people who don't identify with either party or who maybe aren't even sure of their own political persuasion. And so isn't part of this issue... Um, getting people inspired to vote? I mean, in terms of getting people to want to vote and feel like they have a connection? Because what I see in the numbers is people who don't feel like they have a home in either party. Uh, and so they're sitting things out and maybe don't feel like it's that much of, a, of an obligation to turn out. And so why not address that problem, which is, you know, the lack of enthusiasm among certain people as opposed to making it mandatory? Well, let me, let me okay. jump in on this because it's, it's really interesting because I think one of the ways in which people get 
distanced from the system or not part of the system is they don't get communicated with. So I had 11 elections for state legislature and the secretary of state. And when I went, I love to go out door knocking. And when I went out door knocking, I was given a list that had both the registered voters and then a check mark if they were prime voters, meaning people who always come out. And I was told by my campaign people, if you see people on the street who are sitting there, if they're not on your list as prime voters, don't talk to them because they can't help you. And so I think it's a, it becomes a vicious cycle where people who are outside of the process, who aren't going to vote, don't get, they don't get mail. They don't get advertisements. They don't get candidates going to their door. They don't get political parties you know, c calling them on the telephone. And so the idea is that if, everybody, if you know as a candidate or as a political party that everyone is going to vote, you have to talk to everybody. You have to tailor your message to everybody as opposed to that narrow list of your own supporters and make sure you get a little few more of them than the opponents. Uh, but if you have to really talk to everyone, and then once people are in the process and they get the information, and frankly, if they know they're going to be required to vote, they take the information, they learn, they become greater citizens. So I think this can help to create a really an upward cycle, a virtuous cycle. Uh, Every time Miles tells this story, I feel obligated to say it's the only thing he says I don't fully believe. <laughs> because knowing how warm Miles is, I knew he talked to those non-voters. Yeah. And that his campaign uh, sort of staff had to pull him away and say, no, talk to the people who are number ones on the list over here. But I think that Miles made an essential point, I think, about our that from our argument, which is uh, suddenly all these people who are left out from the beginning of a campaign are communicated with, but also in the, the Australian experience and the experience in other countries shows that those voters take their um, take their obligation very seriously. We quote Kim Beasley, who was uh, the ambassador of Australia to the U.S., was a leader of the Labor Party. He's been standing at polls since he was a kid because his dad was in politics. And he talked about, he said, you can tell the people who come who are political junkies who vote no matter what the system is versus people who are less engaged uh, but are voting in part because they're required to. But he said, when you talk to them, they engaged with the election because they had to, and then they put some thought into why they were making the choice they were making. So my favorite uh, photo of voting in Australia are four surfers in their wetsuits at Bondi, near Bondi Beach with their surfboards next to them in the polling booth, <laughs> dutifully casting their ballots. And then they were, looked like they were going to jump right back into the surf. It affects everybody, people. This is part of life. And we are telling folks, take this seriously and you should be taken seriously as well. Well, I, one of the things that you talk about in terms of logistics and kind of technically how this would work is that, uh, you know, primaries are a little iffy. They're different everywhere and they might not be included in this compulsory. Maybe we just have general elections. But but isn't primaries the problem? I mean, aren't they part of what gets you to a choice between two undesirable people? You know, according to people who don't vote, they go, well, we got a crazy person on this side and a crazy person on this side. And I don't want to vote for either of them because there's such a low turnout in the primaries. You end up with these like distilled versions of each end of the political spectrum, which also turns people off. I mean, isn't there something we can do about primaries where it might actually be really helpful to have more people <laughs> involved? Two things, and I, I'm, I want Miles to take this up as former secretary of the state in Connecticut. I learned what you've learned all kinds of things writing a book. It's the only state in the union where the title is secretary of the state. The Who state. Who knew? I apologize. But no, don't, <laughs> no, it's not on you. Uh, I've said it wrong for the entire time of our our uh, our, our partnership until recently. Um, the. Um, we discussed this at great length for the very reason you said, not only between ourselves, but with our working group. And we just decided that partly there were limits to how much voting you can require. And, and one of the things we talk about in the book, although we don't have a uh, we don't sort of declare this must be done. We have an awful lot of elections in the United States at every level uh, that uh, we should think about. Is, are there ways of consolidating elections? Um, and, yeah, we each of us probably favor various reforms for primaries. Both of us, I think, are in favor of the instant runoff, for example, right. which we think helps 
uh, give voters more way of having their voices heard, you know, pick your first choice. But then if that candidate fails, your ballot goes to your second choice. There are a lot of reforms like that. We just decided that there were limits uh, as to how much this one idea could uh, sort of carry out. And we have a last chapter in the book where we say, look, there are a lot of other reforms our system needs. We don't want to pretend we are like those 19th century elixir salespeople saying this one idea will cure, cure all that ails you. Uh, but so, but we agree fundamentally, we want to encourage a broad discussion about how to fix our democracy. Well, and that goes to the question of, you know, how this might be implemented, you know, at the local and state level. I mean, it is possible to imagine a piece of federal legislation, you know, that would require uh, voting as for federal elections. But the way we really see this is that localities and states in their kind of historic role as laboratories of democracy, as we know, um, would figure out uh, through their, you know, with reference to the, to the election laws of the, of the particular state, how to do this, what elections it should apply to, is there a kind of a run up, a step up to full, full, uh, full uh, implementation, et cetera. So what we do is lay out a kind of a template of basically what we believe would be the best system and then for legislators, whether it's in California or Connecticut or Massachusetts or anywhere, uh, they would take it up, tailor it to the state's laws, um, and then make it happen. And our hope is that what we're doing is kind of putting out a uh, kind of a North Star reform to people who are working in the field and that, you know, people will take it up as they see fit. And you it even worked. include model legislation in here, helpfully. Right, which I'm very proud was introduced by a former right. student of mine in Connecticut, Will Haskell. Wow. And I don't think it was because he was my student, but bless him for introducing the bill, which let us show that. And, and we tried in laying out our idea in enough detail. You know, for example, we suggested conscientious objector status in good American fashion. I want to discuss this because I, we vote often in san francisco and this is my don't i didn't mark it yet this is my ballot and i so we all want to know this is my actual vote. ballot this is for this is the runoff for state assembly and um it's it's a special election our state assembly person took a different position in the city government so now there's this anyway so this is runoff. there is no none of the above here we have two choices and even in san francisco where we're pretty um uh, innovative, you know, and, and pretty open in the way we vote. And, you know, we've done, we've got great choice voting and open primaries and all such thing. No, none of the above, which is imp an important part to your, as you were saying, of, of making sure this works. You know, when Richard Nixon was president, he got asked a question he didn't like. He'd always say, I'm glad you asked that question. In this case, I'm really <laughs> glad you asked that question because none of the above serves a couple of important functions for us. Um, as a matter of principle, we don't believe that even though we believe the government has the right and we think it would be helpful to oblige people to participate, it has, does not have the right to tell you you have to pick from this list of candidates. If you really don't like this list of candidates, you shouldn't have to vote for them. And we also do that because we believe legally we have a there's a great legal chapter in our book. And I can say that because it was largely written by our lawyers. Uh, we had a great group of lawyers who work very it's closely. It's a very expensive chapter. It's a really uh, you know, it's an interesting legal chapter where we go through the case law to say there, it, what it shows is the government as in jury duty can compel uh, participation. It can't compel speech. And we wanted to be absolutely sure that this idea could pass constitutional muster. We'll see any important ideas litigated in the United States. So we added the none of the above option. Now, this is not in the book. This is my own view. I have long believed in a none of the above option where if it ever got a plurality, it would force a new election. Because if voters disliked, again, this is not our suggestion in the book, but if voters really dislike those choices enough, they ought to be able to force uh, a new election. But uh, as we also have noted, um, you know, the people, the percentage of people who use none of the above in the states where it's available is Arizona and Nevada, right? Yeah. Miles, yeah. that um, you know, it's usually 1%, 2%, 4%, but at least people should have that option. Uh, and I think especially with more um, male ballot voting, when you're going to get more people who aren't necessarily going to the polls, you might see an increase in the people who 
want to use that kind of option because it's not so a self-selecting group that's going to the poll. It's a more passive thing. It's coming to your home and you do want to maybe have the none. I was shocked that we didn't have a none of the above option. It's one of those uh, things you read and you go, how is this not a thing already? The, the, well, actually, you know, somebody asked us in the course of arguing about this, who concerned that too many people would pick it. And both of us, <laughs> as small D Democrats, said, isn't that valuable information? If the voters are right. sending back a message right. that none of the above is way more popular than the alternatives, that's a message of democracy ought to hear. I agree. I agree. That's what, that's one of the great um, provisions that you have in here. This sort of a small step, maybe to to a larger. One of the other things that I saw in the um, in the statistics that I thought was really interesting was the overwhelming support for. Um, absentee voting and voting by mail. It was something like, let me just go to my little thing here. It was, it's something like 71% of people said any voter should have the option of voting early or absentee, um, including 50, 57% from Republicans and Republican-leaning folks and 83% of Democrats. I mean, that is really stupendous. Well, Those first are of stupendous all, I'll just, I'll just say it's amazing the things you'll learn if you read this book. <laughs> Bless you, Miles. <laughs> but uh, so we, we are very uh, strong supporters of the idea of, uh, of what we call gateway reforms. In other words, there are a lot of things that that really are uh, are quite popular now uh, and would really help. You know, uh, early voting. And by the way, these have really come into more and more play. I mean, there's been a lot of attention, properly so, on the states that are trying to roll back people's ability to vote. But it's also true that in even more states, and not only blue states, uh, you know, they are the expansions of the possibilities have, uh, have taken place. So when I uh, began at Demos, there were six states that had, um, you know, uh, same-day voter registration, and now there are 23. There are 40 states that now have online registration, whereas there were two uh, 20 years ago. Obviously, it's technology. Um, and so we've, we've gradually opened these up, and we think that they are both in, in, in really important in and of themselves, but also they suggest that what our real long-term goal should be is to absolutely have everyone participating. That's why we call the book 100% Democracy, because we really want 100% of people being part of the process. I took particular joy in casting my ballot in the 2020 election because it was, I got my mail ballot, and I cast it in a drop box in front of Walt Whitman High School in my town, which is A, where all three of our kids went to high school, but B, Walt Whitman is the poet of American democracy. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about, because uh, uh, Donald Trump toxified the whole election process, we forget how many Republicans in the country took advantage of the same opportunity I had to cast that ballot in a drop box or to vote early. Um, and one of the things we want to emphasize is, you know, both Miles and I are on the progressive side of politics, but we're not for this idea because we're trying to rig elections for progressives. If you looked at the 2020 election, there were places where Republicans picked up House seats because turnout was higher in 2020. If you look at Australia, conservative parties, A, pioneered this system initially, and B, have done just fine under this system. Australia's elections are very competitive because everybody is included. So we really want to persuade, um, you know, obviously we think progressives who have a history of caring about voting rights ought to embrace this. But we also think that people who are moderate or conservative should look at this system as a way of putting away some of these crazy controversies we have election after election and just say, we're going to have great voter uh, election administration and everybody's going to vote. And then we will abide by the judgments of our fellow citizens uh, rendered uh, honestly and with real consideration. Sometimes known as consent of all the governed. Right. It, not 50% of the governed. It, it, I've forgotten. It wasn't, I can't remember which of us put it in one of the documents, but the, um, in the Declaration of Independence, it says that government is uh, legitimate only if it is based on the consent of the governed. And then we have noted not 66.7% of the governed or 50% of the governed, the governed. Uh, and we're trying to get as many of the governed to consent to their government. The other thing I think would happen, actually, if this were enacted uh, in a state uh, or, or nationally is that all of the institutions of our society would bend themselves towards making this work. 
So election officials, obviously, if everyone is required to vote, uh, it's really, I mean, you know, you'd probably be breaking the law if you tried to prevent people from voting or make it harder for people to vote. But certainly election officials that cared about, you know, doing their job well would put it out there and really get it out there that people, and that's what has happened in Australia. But I also think the schools would change. So, I, I, you know, if, if, I, if I were a principal at a high school and I knew that every one of the graduating seniors was required to vote at the, when they turn 18, would that make me be more likely to make, you know, civic education and education about how government works uh, a higher part of the curriculum? I think it absolutely would. If I were uh, an employer would, and everybody, all of my employees were required to vote, would that make it more likely that I would give them the chance to take time off from work and do that? I think it would. So I think you would see, you know, nonprofit organizations, employers, schools, election officials, political parties, all begin to accommodate themselves and bend themselves towards the assumption that everyone is voting and we're speaking to everyone and we're making it possible for everyone to participate. Now, um, that's brings up a good point. You talk about how in Australia it's a party, right? That people come out, there's face painting and funnel cakes and, and uh, an election day uh, is on a weekend, right? It's uh, it's on, I think, Saturdays or Sunday. Sure, yeah. um, and, you know, it's something. So we, we were talking backstage about how in San Francisco we had kind of tried to do something like that. We passed this ballot measure called, uh, you know, Saturday voting or Y Tuesday. And we were going to make an allowance to do an election on a Saturday. And at the time, uh, it was sold as a party, right? And people and voters said, okay, let's try this. Um, now, uh, by the way, never panned out. We never got the money for it. But anyway, um, now, do people want to have a party on election you day? Know, like, it can, It just seems like maybe it could get a little contentious. Maybe you have no alcohol rule. I just feel like, how would that, today, I don't know how that would look. You know, it's fun. It, it, one of the uh, political scientists we work with called our attention to the fact, and it's in the book, that there are actually studies that show that uh, if elections are uh, coincide with parties or celebration, turnout goes up something like 6%. So partying is good for democracy, which is one of the most popular points uh, we probably make in our whole uh, book. And if you look at, um, you know, we favor having Election Day, uh, national holiday, whatever day you choose to, whether Saturday voting or, you know, even if we stick with Tuesday, which is crazy time, it goes back to uh, farming uh, rules back in the 1840s and what, what scheduling that worked well for farmers. And God bless farmers, but they're not a big part of our population right now. Um, but where you, we should, it should be a, a holiday. But, you know, in the Australian system, I think the only objection to Australia is people probably gain about five pounds after Election Day because <laughs> there is such a tradition of civic groups and school groups selling stuff at the polls, uh, and people expect it now. The Australian Election Commission even has a sense of humor. They put out something, a friend from Australia sent me recently, the onion should go on top of the democracy sausage they put out. It wasn't a real regulation, but <laughs> It's become such a part of the culture, um, and uh, I, I suppose there are uh, uh, alcohol rules that might prohibit drinking at the polling place, although, in America, Lord knows, in past American elections, there were plenty of drunk in election uh, days, probably especially after the returns come in and your side loses. <laughs> let, me just, let me just say here, because I think, it, you know, uh, I think you've raised a really serious question right now. That is that our politics is extremely polarized, extremely toxic. Um, you know, we're worried about the, you know, the kind of the continuation of our democracy. And this is not a, a magic bullet. But I think one of the things that this would do would be to change the incentive system, as we sort of talked about. But the incentive that you have now, somebody used a phrase that I really, really stuck with me called enrage to engage. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the incentive system is to churn up your base by vilifying the opponents and by, you know, scaring the heck out of the people that are on your side and making sure that they come to the, the ballot. And then in the worst case scenario, figuring out ways to depress the turnout of your opponents. But if we set the, if there's a different incentive system as everyone is voting, because then you have to appeal to the, to the middle, to the, I mean, the people who are absolutely going to vote no matter what tend to be more ideological, have firmer political beliefs. That seems to be the case. But in the middle or, you know, in the outskirts, let's say, you know, people are less ideological. But if you 
are, know that everybody is going to be voting. You have to appeal to everyone. So you really can't just target that mean-spirited, um, you know, just get our own people out and beat them by one. Well, have you gotten any pushback from uh, parties? I mean, you guys are progressives, but I mean, the Democratic Party uh, including, and the Republican Party have an incentive to keep to some degree, the turnout of their opponent low, you know, and if you live in a place where the, you know, your opponents turn out, uh, the op opposing parties turn out is consistently low, maybe you don't want, you know, political parties aren't, uh, you know, they're not blameless organizations and all this, let's just say that, and they have their own agenda and their own need to survive and their own imperative to do that. And so have you gotten pushback from, from folks in parties who say this is our current system, is, we got this nailed down? Well, it's a great question because every incumbent who won the last election thinks the existing electorate is brilliant and should not be changed. And that's sort of in the nature of things. And so I can imagine there might be forces in various parts of politics who want to keep the status quo uh, because they do well under it. Um, on the other hand, you know, collectively, we know this status quo is not working very well for any of us. Uh, and that there is the anger. I, I think that Miles just put a line under what is a really important point. People ask, how would this change the electorate? Uh, certainly it would include more young people. Um, you know, our election laws are terrible for young people because young people move around a lot more than older people. It's one of the reasons same-day registration has been such an important reform. We make it really hard for young people about this system would say, A, they have to vote, but B, we will make it easier uh, for you to vote. Uh, we would include more low-income people, as what the data suggests. But as Miles underscored, we'd include um, a smaller percentage of firm ideologues. Uh, and I think that would force both parties, even people who have very strong philosophical convictions, uh, to broaden their appeal to voters who don't reflexively answer to their arguments. Uh, they would have to persuade them. And again, I think the experience in a number of countries shows that the, this system, again, what political science we have on it, uh, probably promotes more fairness in government policy toward lower income people. Uh, I suppose you could say that's a progressive thing, but I think that's a good thing if you're fairly representing lower and middle, lower middle income people. Um, it would probably make uh, public officials pay more attention to young people, which I think we need. Uh, and I say that with my color hair here. Yeah. I think it's the right thing uh, to do. But it would also, I think... Uh, moderate both sides in useful ways in the kinds of appeals they make. Uh, and also, I think one of the other questions that I would have in terms of pushback from even folks on the left is this question of citizenship. You're going to have a voter roll. Let's imagine a long list. Maybe it's nationwide. Maybe it's just your state. Um, and it's got a list of citizens and everybody who's a citizen has to vote once they reach a certain age. Um, is there fear that, you know, having that means that there are people who aren't on it, right? And so we end up in a situation where, you know, it's sort of, it's not an E-Verify exactly, but it kind of can tell you who's here uh, and undocumented and who's, and who's not um, a, a lawful citizen. I mean, is there yeah. concern about this? Well, in, in addition to the uh, point that EJ made before about the fines and making sure that, it, that you know, that this doesn't disproportionately impact low-income uh, people in communities of color. We also did a lot of discussion with people from the Latinx community about the issues around, you know, well, what if people th think they're required to vote and they're not on the list and then have they committed, you know, an inadvertent uh, uh, offense? And I think our view is that the laws should be crafted very clearly to say that inadvertent, you know, uh, mistakes based on the, the new law uh, would not be, would not be uh, you know, cause for a, a, you know, a fine or anything being imposed. Um, you know, there is the problem now of, you know, people in their, their, you know, the ID systems that we have and people, you know, erroneously through automatic voter registration at the motor vehicles department, people can be put on the rolls even though they're not citizens. So there's an implementation issue here. But I feel confident, again, um, you know, that with election administration that was dedicated to making this work, and properly funded. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, you know, elections have been so historically underfunded in this country um, that election administration is, is it's far more amateurish. It's far less uh, sophisticated technologically. It has far less security systems uh, than it should. 
So I'm very hopeful, uh, and in uh, President Biden's new budget, there is $10 billion to, to be given to the election, to the states for their election process to modernize, et cetera. So I think a, a well-funded, highly professionalized, as nonpartisan as possible election administration could really deal with making sure that those problems are minimized, minimized, not to say, no, there'll never be a problem with the system. There's a problem with any new system that's tried. And just to, uh, your, your point is a really good one. Number one, uh, the current election rolls contain very, 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 very few non-citizens. You know, there's all this bugaboo about, oh, my gosh, all these non-citizens will vote. The, the cases of voter fraud in the country are derisory. They're just a tiny, tiny number. Uh, and in terms of this system, I don't think this system would have any impact at all uh, on the issue of who is here legally or uh, illegally. That is a challenge for automatic registration to some degree. Uh, but I don't think that this system is something that either those who worry that uh, uh, non-citizens will vote illegally have to worry about. And I don't think that it's something that the non-citizens themselves have to worry about. And we really try to build some careful measures in here to make sure both those things are true. Um, excellent. Uh, now, there are several questions that we've gotten over YouTube. And one of them says, why are Republicans scared of the For the People Act and voting reforms. I'm sure you I'll both take, have I'll, opinions I'll, on that I'll one. That. <laughs> so first, I think it's important to say, and I say this as a, an election official and formerly a secretary of the state where, you know, basically the, they're evenly divided. There are a lot of Republican election officials who are really working hard to do a good job. Secretaries of state in various you know, states, as, as Oklahoma, West Virginia, Washington. I remember uh, that one in Georgia who was remarkable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it's mm -hmm. a pretty good case in point. Even under duress, mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to go. So, it's, so I don't want to you know, paint every Republican with a brush on this. There is clearly a faction or, you know, within the Republican Party that is you know, aimed at trying to push, push the vote down as much as possible and maintain minority rule as long as they can. Um, you know, I just think that we have to rely on the fact that people of both parties believe fundamentally in our democracy, and we need to put together a majority coalition that is in favor of that. And I think we can do it. I think we can do it over time. I, I think that when you look at the Republicans who have pushed for some of these suppressive measures, they're obviously responding to what Donald Trump said at the end of the 2020 election. Uh, and some of these laws really are almost surgically directed to exclude particular parts of the electorate. One of my favorites is the voter ID law in Texas that passed some years ago where you could use your concealed carry permit as an ID, but you could not use your state-issued ID from the state university system. I wonder what they were trying to do there. So <laughs> there's some of that that goes on, but there are Republicans quietly who want to, and I want them to become more public, who want to say, we don't need to be afraid of a bigger electorate, that Republicans can do just fine with a bigger electorate. We were just on a talk radio show this morning where uh, an old friend of ours, Arnie Arneson, who is a politician in New Hampshire, made the point that the Democrats in Virginia passed a very open election law that made it very easy for people to vote in Virginia. And guess what? Republicans won all the way down the ticket. They used the higher turnout to their advantage. And I hope more Republicans come to realize they should just embrace full voting and then let's have, a, let's have an election and see where everybody stands. Well, that keeps happening. I don't know what Democrats are going yeah, no, that, <laughs> to change that, their position. That's a, that's a whole other issue. Well, but, <laughs> but that's but, an important point I just want to make, which is, uh, uh, although I'm sure that we will be criticized for this, our, our principle here is fundamentally a small-D Democratic principle. I think both of us are real believers in democracy, having worked at it for many, many, many years from one vantage point or another. So, you know, uh, I haven't asked my Democrats, are you really sure that this is going to be an advantage for Democrats? And my response is, it's not why we're doing this. You know, in some cases it will, and in some cases it won't. But the point is, it will be good for democracy. It will be good for, for participation. It will be good for having a country where everybody is part of the process and not just the A-list and the B-list, as EJ described. Well, I mean, to your, to your excellent point about Republicans, I mean, you show in the 
polling statistics in here, at least, that it's pretty bipartisan, that there's sort of 15 percent of Democrats and Republicans are really in favor of this you know, sort of compulsory voting system. And then the same about the same number in each party is also strongly against. But but there there's not um, at least the numbers don't show like a, a huge allergy um, among Republicans that, uh, you know, against this kind of system. Again, bless you for reading all the numbers in the yeah. book. The, uh, um, you know, one of the things I worry about is our, our polling was done before Trump did what Trump did in 2020. Uh, and I worry how would that change. But the reason I'm glad we did that polling before anything happened is it showed exactly what you said uh, and that indeed people who are very conservative as well as people who are very liberal believe that voting is both a right and a duty there was you know they were two of the strongest groups in favor of that idea so again this tells us that there is at least some shot at beginning to sort of persuade at least some people across party lines. Right now, Democrats seem to be the party of big more inclusion and the Republicans less inclusion, but it does vary by state. And I think there are uh, Republicans out there who would like to be able to argue publicly, yes, we w are willing to trust the whole electorate. Uh, I have another question here. Um, would running public service announcements uh, through the Ad Council, we've seen those, um, Explaining the importance of voting help turnout. Like, should we be, I mean, are there ways to make this a cultural um, mandate without necessarily, or before, or kind of as part of making it a legal mandate? Um, I, I mean, I think the answer is yes. And, uh, you know, in our, in, our, in our day job, so to speak, you know, all many of these things that people are doing are really important and helpful in moving forward. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, platforms, the, you know, the digital platforms, Facebook, uh, Instagram, all those, even though they've been criticized for allowing misinformation to get out there, also did a really pretty good job of, of you know, making sure that people knew when and how to vote and, you know, the, the calendars, uh, et cetera. Uh, I think a public service campaign by the Ed Council and others would be a great thing to do. Um, you know, I think that, uh, that election officials ought to do public education. I, for this to succeed, um, you know, we will need a massive public education effort. Massive public education effort is good right now, but as I said, the more we've done, the more we've moved the needle, but still not enough. So I think this is asking us to take a real leap over all of the back and forth about should we tighten this or loosen this or do this and say our goal needs to be we want everyone to participate, and we're going to figure out ways to move towards that goal over the next few years. And I have a quick question for you, just as a Secretary of State. We have another question um, that I think is a, you know, a good idea. I'll throw it out there for you all. Um, can, how can registrars and election officials find potential voters who don't realize they can or should be voting? Like, Is there a way we can send them something and say, hey, <laughs> you know, we've got motor voting here in California, but are there other ways we can reach people um, and affirmatively say to them, please register, you can do that, you should do that, and we're going to go ahead and notify you that, that you're eligible. Is that something you, you ever considered yeah, or yes. did? I mean, Maybe you I mean, did. <laughs> there are major uh, efforts, mm -hmm. uh, online voter registration, automatic voter registration. When I was Secretary of State, one of the things that I did was go to all the, the naturalization ceremonies in the state of Connecticut and registered people on the spot. It was astonishing. We got 90% of people who swore their citizenship oaths to register right on the spot. And I think a number of secretaries are, are doing that. So, yeah, I think, I think all that is, uh, is good. And one of the things, this is actually in the law in Connecticut, is that registrars are required to go into the high schools prior to graduation to let people know that, of their options to register. And if you combine that with pre-registration, allowing people to pre-register when they were 16 and 17, you really would capture all of the high school people coming out, and that would be a big deal. Oh, by the way, I will say this. Even in, 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 uh, um, in prisons and in people who are incarcerated, there's now a push towards making sure that they know that when they come out, they can get their voting rights back. So, yeah, all this is, I think, really important. And I think both these questions are good ones because they uh, underscore one point we want to make about the book and one point about Australia. Uh, we wrote this book not to say 
Stop doing what you're doing now and just concentrate on our idea. We are trying to put this idea out as a long-term goal, but we want people right now to fight for the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We want civic people to try to do everything they can to get everyone to participate in our democracy. We think all those steps lead in a direction where we hope at some point People will embrace our idea. The other point that those questions raise is I had, a, I had two great uh, research assistants work with me on this book, uh, Amber Hurley and Megan Bell, who are both mentioned in the book. And when Australia does all these wonderful things to get people on the voter rolls, to make sure that they register. And Amber just was looking this stuff up, and she came into my office and said, have you seen all these cool things they do <laughs> down in Australia on their elections? There are other countries that we, the U.S. has always learned from other countries. By the way, the secret ballot, mm-hmm. that was a revolution. The secret ballot used to be known as the Australian ballot. It was a radical idea when it was opposed. It didn't really become the law until the late 19th, early 20th century. And now we wouldn't think of doing elections any other way. So ideas that seem radical suddenly become conventional. Uh, Yeah. And one person writes here. um... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, go ahead. You got to read it now. All right. (laughs) It's funny because we've all felt this. Um, What recourse do voters have when politicians overturn their will? I'm thinking of Florida, which after allowing felons to vote, you write about this, right? They they voted to allow felons to vote, and then that was thwarted by some additional regulations that the state legislature put on top of that. So we had a voter-enacted reform that was sort of undermined by, um, po- you know, sort of state politicians. What kind? This is the kind of thing that makes people not want to vote. <laughs> this reader will like our, our book because we write about that. Miles, why don't you take it? Because you were very involved in some of this stuff. Well, I do think that, you know, the, the Florida example is a wonderful case in point because there was a, just an enormous um, grassroots effort, which was quite bipartisan, quite bipartisan, um, uh, to get a, the ballot initiative passed, Amendment 4 of the, to the Florida Constitution. And then the legislature absolutely undermined it by, by saying, well, you have to pay all of your fines. And, of course, they had very terrible records. People couldn't even find out how much they owed. So of the... 1.2 million people who should have gotten their rights back, which was an extraordinary number, you know, maybe 100,000 or even less actually v- ended up voting. But still, it was still a step. So, yeah, I think that the, the recourse that people have is to vote those people out in the next election. And if everybody can vote, there's more likelihood that they'll be turned out if they undermine the will of the voters. I, th- I think there is this real problem that's been going on in the country where when voters pass a referendum, and then the, the uh, state legislature, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say it sounds very partisan. I think this has tended to happen even more in Republican states in recent year or so. Uh, you know, on gerrymanders, uh, for one, uh, although that one is violated by both parties sometimes, but on gerrymanders on this Florida law and on others, the voters say X and the legislature says we don't care what the voters say. That's a real problem. If the legislature thinks there's a problem with what the voters said, take it up with the voters again. Uh, try to get make a case for repeal, but don't pass laws that say, well, we are theoretically uh, you know, saying yes to this, but in fact we are completely undercutting it, and that's really problematic. Uh, we're going to throw the bums out. Isn't that what they, that's what they say? Um, this is an interesting question. You touched on this earlier, but I just want to bring it back. Someone in the audience asked, what role will the courts play in voting reform? Because it seems like the court um, doesn't like laws like the Voting Rights Act, et cetera. Like maybe, some, maybe the Supreme Court, maybe with its current makeup, for example, might be uh, a little less open to the legal challenge that you guys write is pretty much guaranteed to come. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons to worry about this current Supreme Court. They have voted not once but twice to undercut the Voting Rights Act that Congress passed. Uh, they go, and, and with really negative effect on our elections, when the first uh, Shelby v. Holder uh, decision came out, getting rid of the automatic pre-approval by the Justice Department uh, preclearance of laws in states that had historically discriminated, as soon as the Supreme Court ruled, all of these measures passed that made it harder for people to vote. 
Uh, and then in more recent decision, uh, another section of the Voting Rights was under, Act was undercut. So I am very worried about the direction of this Supreme Court on voting rights, as I think the questioner uh, is. Um, we are very aware of the potential challenges to an idea like ours, which is why we actually devoted a lot of time to why we think there really is a strong constitutional argument that is based not on any wild reading of precedent, but on reading of the precedents as they actually are. Uh, would I ever make any predictions about what this particular court would do? Uh, no. I would not, but I, I'm curious. Maybe Miles is absolutely convinced that they'll <laughs> do the right no, thing. No, but I want to pick up on, on one word that was in the que uh, question, which was courts, plural. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, the Supreme, I don't disagree at all about the Supreme Court. I'm very, very worried, although I think when Katanji Brown-Jackson gets on that court, she'll straighten those people up a little bit, I hope. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, but the courts played an incredibly important role in 2020 yes. during the elections. There were 400 lawsuits filed mm -hmm. during the course of the of the 2020 elections. They were all it, all different issues, but many of them were about the expansion of early voting, the expansion of um, mail-in voting. Could they count? Could they start counting earlier? Could they keep counting later? All of these things that were changing the rules back and forth. But I would say overall, the courts held their ground. The courts upheld changes that were made to make it easier to vote, uh, generally ruled against kind of cynical challenges to voting laws and to try to and then afterwards to attempts to overturn the elections. You know, there were 60 suits by people claiming that the election was fraudulent, which it obviously was not. So I, I think that the courts have been a good bulwark. You know, the, the question is what will you know what? Obviously, there are a lot of new justices that were appointed by Donald Trump who were likely to you know, going one way. On the other hand, there are a lot of new justices that have appointed by President Biden in the federal courts. And the state courts have been really, really important, too. Uh, state, one of the major things that's happening in litigation now is that people are going to state courts based on state constitutions giving people the right to vote, and they're winning. So I'm, I'm a little better, uh, uh, feel better about the role of the courts overall uh, w without disagreeing with you at all on the Supreme Court. You know, I've been joking that I love working with Miles because I think of myself as a pretty hopeful person, maybe a glass one-tenth full person. He's a glass one-twentieth full <laughs> person, but he's absolutely right. It is really, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad he made that point because it's really worth looking at the litigation after 2020. And the system really did hold up. Uh, and it's why the attack on the Capitol had to happen is because the system held up. There were recounts, there were court cases, and they were all on the side of no, let the voters themselves make this decision. Uh, so, yeah, you're, I, I'm really glad you mentioned that positive uh, aspect of what happened in 2020. And as soon as we pass universal voting those courts are going to go back to work on our behalf. I, I'm totally <laughs> convinced. <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, it does bring up an interesting point in terms of not just the courts, the state courts maybe being a better place. It's easier sometimes to amend a state constitution, certainly than the, than the U.S. Constitution, yep. to put in a right um, around elections or voting. And so people might find an easier path there. But also this idea that I think you all... Y'all kind of agree we're probably not going to get a federal law on this anytime soon. It'll probably have to happen in some localities and maybe a small state. And then, you know, and then sort of the laboratories are going to have a bubble up. So it may actually be played out in state courts and local courts before you get a sort of larger you know, court case. Is that that's how you envision this? Yeah, playing I, out? we think an idea such as this, as has happened, for example, with instant runoffs where uh, the state of Maine has started to use them. Uh, they were, it was used in the New York City primary for mayor uh, this year. Uh, there are a lot of innovative ideas that have been tried out first in the states that spread uh, to the rest of the nation. Um, and that's how we think this idea would advance, although we do hope, we would love to see a bill introduced into the into Congress. We'd love a debate at the national level simply to get this idea out there that, uh, you know, because we view it as a kind of game changer. Um, you know, let's not just talk about what we can do to prevent bad things from happening. Let's envision a whole new system that could make something really big and good happen. So we want the debate at the national level, but we expect that the action uh, in the, the at 
least to begin with, will be at the state and local level. You know, to pay uh, California a compliment, uh, you know, one of the one one kind of originally radical idea, which was to take the redistricting power away from the state legislators who, as I well recall, uh, were in the business of picking their voters before the voters then had to choose on them and created an independent redistricting commission. And the California system, you know, has worked, uh, from my point of view, uh, quite well. Um, and it's spread to a lot of other places. So there are uh, several ballot initiatives have created independent commissions in other places, et cetera. So I think the, the idea of finding some places that are willing to innovate, willing to take a risk on the idea of universal voting, have it prove its concept at the local level and work its way out. I think that's how we envision it. I see, but I'll just say very quickly, kind of a three, we are going to try to continue to move this issue forward uh, with a kind of a three-part strategy. One is to really make it part of the public debate, you know, in journalistic circles and policy circles and in, uh, in government. Second, to, you know, I mentioned that I thought there is a real robust democracy movement in the country, but to get those organizations who are working to both defend and expand democracy to take this as one of their agenda items, not to supplant everything else, but one. And then we hope come 2023, 2024, that we'll start to see it enacted in some places, and then we'll go from there. We'll, so we'll come back. We'll talk to you then. I hope so. Um, we have a couple more minutes, but I, so I did want to get to the last couple of questions here. There is a question here. Somebody wanted to know, is there a clear percentage difference between Democrats and Republicans who vote in person versus, they say online, but I assume they mean like mail ballot or not in person. Do you do all have a sense of who's, who's benefiting from um, expanded mail ballot access uh, or um, expanded versus expanded in-person access? Well, you know, in the last election, we had what I think is an imperfect test of this because President Trump himself in his campaign was emphasizing voting in person as the way he wanted to do it because he didn't like the voter expansions uh, that were going on. So that when you looked at the ballot counts on election night, uh, it was quite clear that Democrats on the whole, not uniformly, but Democrats on the whole, took more advantage of uh, the early voting uh, than Republicans did. Having said that, um, in very Republican areas and, and all over the country, there were plenty of Republicans who took advantage of this. And older voters who particularly benefit from this option tend, at least at the moment, to be more, you know, are more Republican than younger voters. And this is a particular advantage uh, to them. So I, I think two answers. One, as a practical matter, in 2020, Republicans were uh, less likely to take advantage of this, but they are by no means uh, disadvantaged by it. And they may and many of them used it, too. Well, yeah, I can tell you in California, for example, we know that uh, on election night, the initial returns, um, because those are the mail ballot votes that, that get counted first, those skew Republican. And then it's actually when the ballots come in that were cast that day at voting stations and at drop off locations, those skew Democrats. So if you're looking at the returns on election night, um, if a Republican's not up by 10 points or more, they may lose that election, even though it looks good for them. They're actually the day the next day, they're going to find that they're actually in, in some serious trouble. So I think to your point, it kind of varies. Yeah, no. In fact, um, in the book, we talk about how uh, Republican, the Trump campaign probably hurt Republicans because what you say is exactly right. Historically, Republicans were better at mail balloting than Democrats were, and California is the perfect case of that. And what you had was Trump discouraging mail voting, which many Republicans on the ground, even when they didn't want to <laughs> criticize Trump, were pulling their hair out and saying, wait a minute, this is an advantage for us. Why is he attacking it? And uh, we talk about uh, a primary held in Wisconsin under pure COVID conditions. It was a mess. Uh, and uh, because of what was going on, it was the Democrats who did a much better job of getting the early vote counted. They took a judge seat, a very contested judgeship, who then ruled in the fall when the state Supreme Court ruled this vote made a huge difference. So you are 100 percent right. Historically, Republicans benefited from it. They're older. 
Uh, Trump kind of turned that around, and a lot of Republicans were very upset. <laughs> I'll just add a very quick, in, really interesting statistic, uh, not partisan-based, uh, but in the 2020 elections, 70 percent of people voted in some way other than coming to the polls and voting. Wow. It was around 40 percent on uh, absentee ballots and 30 percent, uh, you know, early voting. So you have a situation now where where voting is a much you know more varied uh, process, and I actually think that that makes it more possible to think about universal voting because the more options that people have, yes. the easier it is if they are actually required to vote. You know, as opposed to saying, "Well, I can't make it on that Tuesday. How can you ask me to vote?" You have plenty of options, and I think that's a really good thing. All right. So, and so the law is not asking you to go to a polling place; it's just asking you to return this thing that came to you in the mail. And so that's a it's a uh, less of an ask you know, potentially for, for voters. Right. We, uh, the whole argument of our book is that it is not too much to ask the average citizen to play the role that they ought to play in our democracy. And right now, if they are cynical, uh, we understand why they might be. If they think the system makes it not easy enough to, for them to vote, and certainly that was true before the changes of 2020, we understand that. So we want to create a system that makes people want to vote, that creates a sense of excitement about democracy being democracy and meaning everybody and, and including uh, everybody. Uh, and that creates uh, a have them have people ask the question, not why do we have voter suppression, but why not 100 percent democracy? I love it. We have time for one more question here before we wrap up. And I just want to end with this one. So if there is one quick policy fix you could make tomorrow uh, to help in this effort, what would it be? You want to go, Miles? Wow. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Wave your magic wand and fix the world. Go. <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would do universal voter registration. You know, that is a combination of same-day registration, motor vehicle registration, online registration, get everybody registered. Mm -hmm. Then I think at least you have halfway towards everybody voting, and then we can take the next leap forward. And I might just add to that, that would include same-day voter registration, because if we did universal voter registration, anybody missed could register on Election Day. We now have, what is it, how many states have uh, same-day? 23 now. 23 now. This works. And so, especially for young people, uh, I think it would be especially helpful. So we... We'll, we'll, as we did with the whole book, we'll bring both those ideas together. Wow, look at that. Well, thank you both so much. I think we're going to have to wrap up here, but we're so grateful that you took time out of your schedule doing radio interviews and Morning Joe and all the fancy things that you guys have been up to to come and spend some time with us here at the Commonwealth Club. Many thanks to E.J. Dion Jr., Miles Rappaport, authors of 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And we want to thank our audience here. Our lovely audience here and uh, audience watching at home. If you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's effort in virtual programming, visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Melissa Kane. Thank you and stay safe. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.